I know what my, one of my best skills is it's mentoring and coaching. Mm -hmm. And, and that's both with my team and that's also with my clients. And I do an extremely good job educating my clients on the market. I give them tons of market data from the beginning. I go with them to open houses. I, you know, I really make sure they're learning the value and you learn right away if buyers are going to be realistic or not realistic. And if you can mm-hmm. see that they're unrealistic and they're just not connecting the dots when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as an agent, then I'm like, I move right on. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. I'm Rory Gill, your host. And today we're joined by Ryan Glass, a vice president at Gibson Sotheby's, a fellow local um, Boston realtor. And we're going to take a, have an interesting discussion about what's the market looks like, how things are changing in the market. But first, I just wanted to introduce Ryan. I'm very happy to have this conversation. Hey, Ryan, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about you. You are a vice president and you're a team leader at Gibson Sotheby's. Is that right? Correct. Yep. So I've been with Gibson Sotheby's since 2013. Uh, me and my team, we service Boston Metro and South Shore, where I grew up. All right. And you know, for some of the people who you know, in real estate offices know all about this, some are not. We talk about a team in a real estate brokerage. You know, what does that mean? So everyone runs it very differently, which is what I always find really, really interesting. For me personally, I just love coaching and mentoring. So having agents, you know, basically work on my team and be able to help them grow their business for me is a lot of fun, but it also just provides me a lot more support for myself and my clients and, and, and allows me to grow my business. Mm-hmm. When I work with teams, um, you know, they do come in all different shapes and sizes, but a well-functioning team helps really helps the client in the end, because if they're, they need coverage, they need something done. It's not just about one person being available. So um, you're joining us, you know, as we're speaking, we're heading into the spring market, which is, you know, in this area, this is the, the key time of year for us to get ready. For you in our off season, if we have such a thing these days, um, what does that look like for you? What are you preparing? What are you working on through the winter and the holidays? So like you said, this is our busiest time. So what I tend to do is I completely switch gears around November. And I usually think I have about three months to implement anything new. So if I want to hire someone new to train them, that's the time to do it. I just brought on an assistant in November. So just focusing on training him and getting him up to speed, you know, teaching him how to write offers, you know, just, you know, and teaching our systems and processes for him to follow marketing efforts, any kind of new marketing push that I want to try and do that's usually implemented in that time, like that three month window where we are slower than typical with clients. You just have to implement so much if you have any chance of trying to have something new in place, fully functioning in time for spring. You know, what are some of the marketing efforts that you're implementing this year? Um, So this year I did a whole new website. It was something that has been on my back burner for a long time. Like when I was, you know, new, I just went out and got basically the cheapest website I could because I was trying to save money at the time. And it was nice for then, but for where my career is gone, I'm like, I need something a little bit more, (laughs) you know, impressive. So that was a big push this year. Um, And it was a lot of fun just, you know, working with a web developer 
well, a professional web developer and having that rolled out. And then one thing I'm doing this year is trying to do a lot more with video marketing. I just launched a YouTube series, Ryan Explains It All. I think every real estate agent right now is trying to do something with video and none of us quite know what to do. (laughs) It's always, you know, I think fun just trying something new with your marketing, even if it's a total flop, you know, just to see if it works and if it gains traction and, and, and learn from it. I'm very much of the mindset, or and I'm a hypocrite as well, but I'm very much of the mindset that video marketing is our future. That's how we can you know, make connections with people. That's how we can educate our clients. And that's how we can provide real value in an age where the listings, for the most part, are available for everybody to, to see online. Um, and a lot of the basic information is out there. So we need to find a way to really cut through the noise and connect with people. At the same time, it's very uncomfortable for somebody who's not used to it to get out there and create these videos. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, When I started, you know, so my old job was public relations and marketing content creation. So mm -hmm. I was filming myself trying to make these videos and I knew they were terrible. So I was watching them with like my trained eye, like these are awful. I'm not good on film. And it really took me a good two months, I think, of practicing and getting comfortable filming myself, getting comfortable you know, being on camera and not being self-conscious about it. And once I got past that point, then it became a lot of fun. Is, I mean, is that the lesson um, for agents who want to get into video marketing is just to do it and to practice and then eventually you'll find your stride? Yeah. I mean, I, I kept just trying to think about, you know, how am I with a client, you know, and, and mm-hmm. if a client of mine was watching these videos, would it seem like me? Would they look at the videos and say, oh yeah, that's Ryan. Or would it feel forced? Or would it not feel natural? And so the more I was just practicing, the more I kept trying to think of topics of things I talk about with my clients regularly, which definitely then helped, I think, make it a little more natural. I remember working with an agent on my team when video was very new to him. And it surprised me because he was so good with speaking with people. He's such a, a natural conversationalist. And then I put the camera up and he couldn't get any words out. And I chuckled and then I would turn around to go do it myself. And I absolutely knew what that, what that felt like. Um, just putting <laughs> to your natural self out there. It, it's a challenge, but it really has to be done. I think it's such a great way of connecting with just your clients, getting, uh, giving away for even potential clients to know who you are, you know, mm-hmm. like true personality wise. And I think there is such a value add to video that is lost in other forms of marketing. You know, you put it together as a, as kind of a, a web series and a channel um, and you've packaged it up quite nicely and well-titled as Ryan explains it all, you know, how have you had a good, re- uh, how well has that channel been received with your clients and your prospective clients? So it's definitely a lot harder than I expected to get it out there. You know, I, mm-hmm. I find that the distribution itself is definitely challenging, especially a YouTube channel. It's really hard to get people to it. I've been uploading all the videos also to my LinkedIn. And so that's definitely gained a lot more traction. The YouTube channel has been really hard to build up. But the people who see it, they've been reaching out and and getting a kick out of it. And one thing I've been doing is, because I'm trying to build my outgoing referral business, is I've been highlighting agents within Sotheby's in different Mm -hmm. markets who I've sent referrals to. uh, Just to sort of remind my network that I have contacts everywhere. And that's been really well received. The agents that I've been featuring have been have like loved being featured. They're sharing it to their social channels. Uh, so I think it's a little bit also of a maybe a quality over quantity. You know, like I might not have this huge following building from it, but the following that I am getting from it, it's really hitting home with those people. 
No, I love that. And it's it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's not necessarily a broadcast message meant for all eyes and everybody that's out there. It's mm-hmm. it's meant to actually build those real human connections that power your business. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, with that in mind, so you know, video marketing, the other thing we do, do video messaging at all with your with your clients and your connections? Oh, like, like sending them videos? Yes. Not really. Um, okay. I use the audio feature on the iPhone a ton. Mm-hmm. Like just okay. instead of like calling, a lot of times I'm just giving quick updates of their transaction. So it's easier just mm-hmm. to kind of record myself into the phone than sending a text. And I love that feature of iPhone. No, okay. Well, I love that you found a way to do it. You know, part of the challenge we have in kind of cutting through and communicating is getting through just a lot of email chatter, but reaching people with how they want to to communicate. Phone calls aren't great for everybody for every update. So you're actually giving me a good idea that I've never tried and that's just using the the audio update. Um, you know, we've been working on smart, short little video snippets to send to people in our communications. And part of that's been well received. Also, it gets a better response rate than I would say an email does, but it takes me just as many tries to get a, a video out, especially when I'm, when I'm cold as it does putting together a professional broadcast video. I have been uh, reusing a lot of the Ryan Explains It All videos in my email newsletter. Mm-hmm. So there's something that's, you know, like I might do affiliate of the, of the month and just highlight that one agent opposed to all of them, you know, or taking little pieces that I've used and repurposing them. And that's been pretty effective too with my uh, email communications. I mean, do you get to recycle a lot of the content that you create? If you create it for one purpose, do you get to kind of take snippets and everything and reuse it for different yeah. audiences? So I fully admit that this is where I get lazy, <laughs> you know, running around with my head cut off, showing properties, trying to get deals done. It, the marketing is the first thing that falls off of your radar when you're just trying to service your clients. So I'm always looking for ways to repurpose pretty much any form of my marketing as much as I possibly can uh, to be more efficient. Okay, good. And had many great ideas that I didn't always implement the way I should, but some of those conversations that you'd have out in the field with your clients are actually the ones that you'd want to modify and record and use for content because those are the explanations you're giving on a daily basis when you're out and about. So why not take that knowledge and show it off to the world? Absolutely. But you know, you're, you're running around and you know, doing a lot of work, particularly in the, the coming months. It's not big revelation to say to people that this is a really challenging market, particularly for buyers. Buyers, This is a, a seller's market. That's true here in Boston, though I don't think we're by any means alone in the country. Um, it's a very challenging market for buyers. What does it look like for you when you go to work with your buyers in this atmosphere? How has your job changed from when the, the market was a little more balanced? Sure. So we definitely have just been as a team looking for off markets as much as we possibly can. I don't personally even like doing dual agency very often, but that has come up a lot more this year, especially simply because inventory is just so low that when you get a listing, I think your chances now are so much higher that it overlaps with one of your existing buyers. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the past, me and the team, we've sort of always sort of straight away from doing dual agency because it is a trickier transaction. I think there's more liability on our end as the agent, but you know, I I think we've hit a point where inventory is just so low is it's a disservice to our buyer to not do dual agency simply because it makes us uncomfortable. And, you know, with our sellers, what I've learned is you just give them both the exact same advice. You know, I mm-hmm. share the exact same comps with both the buyer and the seller. And I give them both my honest opinion in terms of value. 
And then I let each party decide, you know, how they're going to proceed. I find that it's, you know, it's easier to navigate than I used to think. Um, Mm -hmm. And as long as you're transparent with both parties, that it can actually work out really well. And it's helping those buyers in a time when there is, again, just no inventory. And then just like I said, looking for off markets, cold calling agents that I know who sell a lot in certain areas and asking what they have coming on. You know, I'm actually doing one right now off market. It was great value. And, you know, sometimes people want the convenience of off market. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, this was an investor owned unit that they were worried about, you know, getting it show ready with the tenants. You know, the tenants wanted to stay in place. Well, I had an investor buyer who wanted a place with tenants already there. So, you know, things like that, sometimes, you know, if you if you just hit the, the pavement, basically trying to find inventory for your buyers, you get lucky. Mm-hmm. Sticking on the buyer side, you know, has, I found that I'm working a lot more with the buyers before they put the offer in. And that's where I'm adding more of the value than I used to getting them ready because from the moment that they identify something that they want to the time they have to take action, um, it's so small that the work has to be front loaded, meaning getting them ready, the pre-approval is kind of the obvious thing, but even just kind of walking through, particularly new home buyers, the emotions that that they're going to experience with, with that first offer. Absolutely. I mean, we spend a lot of time just coaching our buyers on the market. You know, mm-hmm. I find that the faster you get them to realize just how competitive this market is, the better you teach them what things cost as early on, encouraging them to see everything, regardless if they like the photos or not. Mm-hmm. All of that helps if they find something they fall in love with especially when you're sending them comps and you, and you know, they've seen them in person. Remember that one where we saw and it looked at a brick wall and that's why it sold so low, you know, things Mm -hmm. you can tell from just pictures, you see why the value was what it was from in person. And so, you know, especially if someone has a tighter budget, we tell them you need to look at everything. It doesn't matter if you like how it looks or not. It might be a comp down the road when you find something you fall in love with. And that then makes it a lot easier for you to know what to bid. And you're not just taking our word for it. Mm-hmm. One thing I, we don't love to talk about because it's kind of a, it's not a glamorous decision, but do you have to ration your time and, you know, make sure that you're taking out buyers who really are truly ready to offer? Uh, you know, we don't like saying that, but do we have to, you know, prioritize certain people who are in a better, who are more ready, willing, and able to go actually I have no shame saying it. Absolutely. I don't like people who waste my time. (laughs) Yeah. No good. Um, I've learned, you know, this is my logic is I know what my, one of my best skills is it's mentoring and coaching. Mm -hmm. And, And that's both with my team and that's also with my clients. And I do an extremely good job educating my clients on the market. I give them tons of market data from the beginning. I go with them to open houses. I, you know, I really make sure they're learning the value and you learn right away if buyers are going to be realistic or not realistic. And if you can Mm -hmm. see that they're unrealistic and they're just not connecting the dots when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as an agent, then I'm like, I move right on. I just go on and get new clients. (laughs) But most people, I think if you give them the right information, they, you know, they learn it and, and they understand it, you know, it's not often that I feel like I'm working with buyers who just aren't, it's just not clicking. I had a few here and there, you know, um, over the past year, but you spot it really quickly. <laughs> the other kind of side of the equation here is when we get to work with sellers. And one of my fears is that a really strong seller's market is actually kind of breeding some, you know, bad habits among real estate agents because it's not necessarily that difficult to sell a property period. If that's the end goal, it's not 
that difficult to sell in this market for a seller. So, you know, what are some things you're doing to make sure that you're giving your seller better options um, in this market, that they're still doing more than just selling the property and also making, getting yourself ready for the inevitable year when the market's going to shift. Sure. I mean, I still think it is possible, believe it or not, even in this crazy market to overprice the property. And when you have a a listing, the nice thing is you do get to call the shots, but you have to be pricing it in a place that you know is going to just create an insane bidding war. And once Mm -hmm. you have that, then you're able to, you know, dictate the terms for the seller, you know, hopefully get waived inspections, hopefully get, you know, either cash or, you know, very high, high, high down payments and get the pick of the litter. But sellers, I will say they're getting extremely greedy and difficult in this market. And especially the ones who are in the process of buying themselves, like Mm -hmm. it's almost like they want payback (laughs) and they're taking out their frustrations of their buying process on their current buyers. And so just making sure that you're managing the seller's expectations, just making sure that, you know, if they're being unreasonable, you don't, you, you have the guts to tell them like, look, you're being difficult. You know, this is what's going to blow the deal because Mm -hmm. even though it is a seller's market, buyers right now are also extremely frustrated Mm -hmm. and the emotional like component that it's a toll that it's taking on them. A lot of them are saying F it and they walk away and they blow up the deal because the seller pushed too hard. And even with the market being as nuts as it is, the minute you have a back on market status, yep. buyers say, what's wrong with it? Mm-hmm. And now lost that ability to sell for as high as you could have sold for. And you lose the ability to try and get the same traction in the same terms, you know, like waived inspections that you could have gotten had you just been that little bit more reasonable, uh, a little bit more empathetic to the buyer. Yep. And I, so we talk about educating the buyer because that's critically important, but I think, you know, that's key right there, educating the seller. That period of time from when you secure the listing, take the photos, prepare the marketing, announce the, you know, put up the listing, announce the open house, that has to be so well orchestrated because the buyer's understanding is such that if something's on the market for more than 10 days, yep. there's something wrong with it. You know, you have no ability to course correct in this market if you're on the seller side. I still think most standard properties would be able to sell. You lose that excitement that is really causing those bidding wars and allowing the sellers to get what they want. And you lose leverage. You're giving buyers more power in terms of negotiations, whereas they really don't have much power your first weekend on the market. Earlier, you mentioned something about, you know, the opportunities for off-market properties. And kind of an interesting fiduciary ethical question I always have is when does it make sense for a seller to to sell their property off-market? What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So I am extremely transparent with my clients. I tell every single seller, it is always in your best interest to go to public market. You never know how high you could have sold for unless you went to public market and opened it up to every single audience. But you sometimes just have situations where maybe the seller just had a baby and and with COVID times, they don't want people coming in and out of their house and they want an easier sale. I get that one a lot. People who just had kids and they have the, and kids just have so much crap. Let's be real. So (laughs) they're thinking, how are we going to, you know, get the house show ready, get rid of all the, you know, toys and the, like the bouncy things and, you know, all those things that little infants and toddlers need especially in the city and the small spaces that make it really hard. So that one's a big one where 
you know, a lot of times they're not necessarily wanting to go to public market. They take convenience as long as it's a good number. Um, I get that a lot. A lot of times I test out a higher number off market. You know, sometimes, you know, sellers just, like I said, they're getting greedy. So sometimes we try the off market route to see what the feedback we're getting, especially when it's a number that I just know is, you know, a little ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) But sometimes they get it because of the off market alert. You can position the property in that way of, well, you know, we're just going to go to market if you're not going to give us our number. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do get a buyer who comes in and falls in love with it. And sometimes it's very personal situations, you know, death, divorce, where people, again, they're choosing convenience over value. You know, sometimes, you know, you you would think that a seller's motivation will always be top dollar, but that isn't always the case. Sometimes they just want a clean, easy sale. I mean, they're not going to give away the property, but if they get a number that they're happy with, you know, and even if you're saying to them, well, you could maybe get 10 to 15 more if we went to public market, they might not choose that. They might choose the convenience. We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. Actually, if it's all right with you, I might steal one of your ideas there. And that is to to do the test market, the test off market at a higher rate. That might help with the... I see it helping with some sellers who have that unreasonable um, expectation and you can get to work that off market without, you know, ending up with a large number of days on market and actually um, hurting any momentum that you have in selling the property. And sometimes it's just a tricky one to comp out. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you have something that's just very, very unique and not cookie cutter at all, that always makes pulling comps way harder. Sometimes you as the agent are saying, let's try off market to see if we can push the value, you know, especially the upper like luxury market, you know, you might want to be tempted to do another 50, 100,000 more, but that could be the kiss of death if you're wrong going on public market. So, you know, a lot of times just getting agents in there, hearing their feedback, seeing the response, seeing if you even get phone calls, putting it up on TAN, Top Agent Network, all of that gives you really great, great, great insight, which helps you price it better if you plan on going to public market eventually anyhow. And then with the, the luxury market within Boston, there's some opportunities and some challenges in there. You know, what's your sense of what's going on in the the upper tier of the market here? So it's really unique. I mean, the city itself, since COVID, pockets are moving and pockets are sitting. Prime locations aren't really sitting on the market at all. You know, if you're in a great, 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 great location, that's still selling really, really fast. But, you know, luxury buyers are extremely fickle. So certain things are sitting. And since COVID... You know, especially because people just spend so much more time at home and people aren't really going to offices still, you know, people aren't making the compromises that they would have made three years ago. And I think that has been huge. And that has actually been a huge thing, too, as sellers, as agents for sellers that we really have to advise them on, you know, making them understand, you know, 
the products have changed. You know, what people are willing to pay for certain products has drastically changed. You know, for example, one bedrooms have been hit huge through COVID. You know, couples won't do a one bedroom anymore where mm-hmm. they would have just to be in their prime location. You know, so things like that, you know, small little things, you know, people have definitely gotten much, much more pickier on and you can overcome it, but you have to overcome it through pricing. You have to price it right. And you have to make sure the seller understands why you're missing the mark if you go too high. I mean, I think that's where we have a more interesting conversation than just saying that this is, you know, across the board, a seller's market or an intense market, because we do see some kind of interesting shifts in buyer preference um, Mm -hmm. within this market, within this state, you know, I remember doing having the modest single family homes in the suburbs in the summer of 2020. And everybody in the world wanted to go look and, and put in offers in on that particular property class. And we've yeah. kind of bounced back and shifted, but the preferences back in 2019, you know, down the street from where we are in the seaport, um, a lot of those developments have not necessarily stalled out or done poorly. That's probably yeah. not the right way to describe it, but their preeminence in the market has now taken a few steps backwards. Well, and just the trends have changed too. I mean, the first time buyer market, for example, is doing extremely well. You know, so many millennials, you know, moved home to their parents' house, you know, let their leases expire and just banked a ton of cash. And a lot of them are, you know, now looking to get into the market for the first time. And actually one trend I've noticed a ton this year, which has been interesting to me, is yes, a lot of people have left the city and gone to the suburbs, but Mm -hmm. a ton of people who were living out of state, especially millennials who were like beginning their careers or moved somewhere for a job, they all left whatever state they were in, came home, and now have decided to stay in Boston. So while you have these people who have left the city for the burbs, yeah. you have all these people who have returned to Massachusetts from random locations and have decided to stay and want to be in the city. Uh, and because they've saved big down payments, you know that market I've noticed is just doing extremely well. I've noticed the buyers in that market are much more qualified than usual. You know, mm-hmm. you're not looking at you know 10 to 15 percent down payments. You're looking at 20 to 30 percent down. So it's just been an interesting shift, uh, even in that market uh, that I've noticed, especially this year. And you know, I've also the places that people are choosing within the state. I mean, the I think the communities that are a little bit outside of Boston, but still retain some urban amenities are the ones that are set up for success in the coming years. Oh, Quincy's on fire. It, like yep. I used to have a house in Quincy and I bought it when I was 26 because it was a cheap place to buy that was close to the city. And now it's like untouchable. I mean, that little yep. two bedroom bungalow that I bought for 305 would probably sell for like 500,000 today, which is insane for a two bedroom house. You're just ahead of your time with uh, <laughs> with that choice right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're talking about kind of COVID era and what it's done to the market, but um, I also I think it's fascinating what it's done to our business. Um, yeah, I, in our office, we've... We did a couple of things out of necessity when COVID first struck that have stuck around. Some ways that we conduct our open houses, some ways that we um, have our meetings. Has anything changed in your business over the past couple of years that you're going to keep? Um, so the thing that I, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I love it and hate it mm. at the same time. Nobody wants to just get a cup of coffee anymore to discuss their search or discuss yeah. listing. It's all Zoom, you know, mm-hmm. like I think COVID has made us so lazy 
And some days I love the efficiency. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm saving a ton of money, not schmoozing clients, taking them to drinks, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so that has made me laugh, but I do miss the social component of the job. Like I do feel like I use so much more time in person with my clients. And now I really don't get to know them until we're out seeing properties. But I do miss the part of the job of, you know, getting drinks, going over data in person, having yep. a, a fun social night out, but also discussing business. That part of the job has really gone away from me. And it's funny that I, it's like pulling teeth to try and get a client to meet for coffee. Like they don't want to do it. They'd rather be like, hey, can we Zoom uh, Tuesday at 530? <laughs> you know, they don't want to go anywhere. I mean, it's such a challenge because this is such a relationship business. Um, people totally. work with us, not because, you know, not because they, you know, even if have a great website, they're not working with us because of the great website. They're working because something about us, they know, like, and trust. Mm -hmm. And if it's just a challenge, if that's the core of our business to, you know, to instill that, to create that relationship, if you don't get to meet with them in person, you know, meeting on Zoom is wonderful. It's better than a phone call, but it does no replacement for meeting somebody in person. Completely agree. You know, at this point, I just kind of wanted to wrap things up and shift into um, some of our closing questions that we ask of everybody that sits down and, um, you know, takes the time to meet with us. And first off, I just want to ask you if you, if you had to give a presentation for about 20 or 30 minutes on any topic with no preparation, what would you be able to present on? Oh, I could talk to a wall. So that would be easy. Uh, <laughs> I love coaching and mentoring completely brand new rookie mm -hmm. agents who just passed the real estate exam and have absolutely no idea where to begin. Um, mm -hmm. I've been doing this since I was 19 and that was a really hard age to start because none of my friends were buying. You know, mm -hmm. I wasn't at that age where people could afford to buy and who's going to trust a 19 year old to sell their home. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I'm a hustler and I, and I, I, that's what I love about the job is you get what you put into it. And yeah, no, hands down, I could spend easily a half hour just giving tons and tons of tips and advice of how to get going, how to create momentum, and how to start building your book of business. Good. The next thing I wanted to ask is if you, um, what happened early on in your career or your life that changes the way that you, you work now? So I started part-time in 2009. And so... As good as this wild ride has been the past, you know, <laughs> however long the market's just been as insane as it has since it's come back from the recession, I remember how hard it was. I remember having, you know, my first listing and it took me six months to sell and doing an open house every single weekend mm -hmm. until I finally got the job done. And so it's definitely made me extremely conservative financially. You know, I just, like I said, I like one thing that kept me from going full time for so long was just the fear of being a hundred percent commission. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that stemmed from starting off in 2009. You know, I see some of my, my friends and I, I love them, but to be honest, they're kind of dumb with their money. And, and mm -hmm. I know it's because they've only known it on the upswing, you know, they're buying extremely expensive cars or, or buying extremely expensive places. And, you know, even though I'm extremely secure and confident in my business, and I really think I can survive anything at this point in the back of my head. I just like a lot of money in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just always am thinking, you know, the market could tank tomorrow. And I think a lot of us had that rude awakening during the shutdown, you know, especially in the city, you know, it was hard to get buyers to go out and buy. And my buyers who did buy got killer deals 
um, 70, 80,000 under ask, which mm -hmm. when have you ever seen that in the city? And even with that opportunity, people were not buying. And that was very, very frightening. And, you know, there was three months I just didn't work. You know, I was trying like crazy to, but mm -hmm. it was very, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was very frightening going three months without a paycheck and thinking, when is this going to get better? Especially something co like COVID, which we had, there was no precedent for, you know, it wasn't like the recession where people were like, oh yeah, after a year, it really started to pick up again. It was, there was no, we didn't know that could have gone on yep. for a year for all we knew. And I think agents who are new should always remember that. I don't mind saying that everything we had in our pipeline came out, eventually came back, but we had a, a few months of just zero income and yeah. nothing really replacing it. And two years later, we can look back at perfect hindsight and say, there's nothing to worry about, but that was all, that was supposed to be our spring market also. Oh, uh, that was our, that was our high, our planned high season. And it was, it was gone. I make 80% of my income by June. So mm -hmm. No, being in that March to June 1st shutdown, I was like, how am I, how am I going to make any money this year? This is when I make most of my money. Um, and it was just, you know, it was, it was scary times. And I mean, when you talk to your agents and train your mentor, your new agents, do you try to bring back those memories and, you know, make them aware of it? It's one thing to start in a slow market in 2009, um, but I'm afraid what's going to happen to certain, you know, uncoached agents who are coming in um during the high you know during the peak absolutely a thousand percent uh just kind of constantly reminding them that because that's the other thing too is the market changes like that it changed it, it you know the way you don't see it coming back is the exact same way you don't see it crashing you know it yep. just overnight it, it can change on you um and you know again i so even before 2009, I was working at a real estate firm answering phones. So I think I started that in 2006. So I saw the tail end of the previous boom. And it was very interesting listening to the conversations in the office and hearing them talk about how much harder it's getting or how much inventory this suddenly is. Mm -hmm. um, and I experienced it a little bit in 2009, but I was only part-time. But, you know, again, living through COVID, it was very... A, like a fresh reminder, you know, mm -hmm. something I never quite forgot, but then actually experiencing it as a full-time agent was completely different of an experience. And then finally, what's something that you're listening to, watching or reading uh, these days? Uh, so right now I'm a little late on the uh, bandwagon, but uh, I'm binge watching all five seasons of Friday Night Lights. And I just find it so motivational. <laughs> I love it's funny because I don't even like sports, but for some reason I love sport TV shows or sport movies because they're just so <laughs> inspirational. And it's just, you know, I'm always playing mental mind games with myself to keep my head in the game. You know, real estate's a hustle, it's a grind. Some days it's a burnout, and you don't want to do the things that make you successful because uh, it takes so long for it to develop, you know, for those yep. seeds to, you know, finally grow. And uh, yeah, so anything like that, that like inspires me. And, and that one is my, my latest right now is Friday Night Lights. Great. All right. And thanks, Ryan. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? Uh, RyanJGlass.com. All right. And I would direct everybody there too, if they want to take a look at the Ryan Explains It All series. Um, it's great. Yeah. You'll get some good information about the market um, and you get to know Ryan a little bit too. 
Thanks, Ryan. And for everybody, uh, just a reminder, my name is Rory Gill. I'm at Next Home Title Town, nexthometitletown.com or Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. Thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, thank you for the good information. It was nice um, having some good local talk about Boston. Um, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.